Scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distresses and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place Eth Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And Jacob said to him, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who directs us in the truth. And we pray now that we would indeed have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand and perceive this your word. We pray that where we are too comfortable in our faith, that you would come and make us uncomfortable. And where we are in need of comfort, that you would come alongside us in your word now and bring us that comfort. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There and Back Again, the title of the memoirs of one Mr. Bilbo Baggins. And in the story, The Hobbit, we read about the adventures that Bilbo has with Gandalf, the dwarves, and others. It's a wonderful tale, as many of you know, having read it yourselves. But there's an interesting fact, and I think I've shared this with you in the past, and that's that the entire story, the entire story of The Hobbit, is arranged in the form of a chiasm. Basically, what this means is that there are corresponding themes or sequences throughout the entire book, with the center point being Bilbo and the dwarves escape by water and wine, and Bilbo gets bread and wine. But the title of the story itself gives us a clue that it has this structure there and, and back again. 
Where does Bilbo's story begin? In his hobbit hole in the Shire. Where does it end? In his hobbit hole in the Shire. Bilbo ends where he began. Of course, he's quite a different hobbit at the end than he was at the beginning, even as Gandalf declares to Bilbo upon their return to Bilbo's home. You are not the hobbit that you were. He'd had an adventure in between, hadn't he? Well, Jacob has returned to Bethel. The last time he was there, he was leaving the promised land, fleeing from Esau, and headed to Uncle Laban to find a wife. A lot has happened to Jacob since that time. And while our recent study of Jacob began in chapter 32, he's not the same Jacob that he was at his first Bethel encounter with Yahweh. He's matured through his wrestling matches with Laban, to some degree with his wives, as we read about in chapters 29 to 30, and of course with God in the form of the man at Peniel in chapter 32. Jacob has progressed to a kingly role. He's the head of a nation that is springing up from his family, even as we noted last week in how he handled the incident with Dinah and Shechem. Clearly, his sons have a long way to go in their maturing, particularly Simeon and Levi. They abused the faith and betrayed the Hivites, severely injuring Jacob's witness in that area. All of those years, Jacob living at peace and seeking to establish the worship of Yahweh are undone in a matter of days. So what is Jacob to do now? The answer comes in chapter 35 and verse 1 which is in some ways a continuation of chapter 34, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Verses 1 through 4 can be broadly characterized as ascension. God's command to arise and go up has a literal meaning, as Bethel was located at a higher elevation than Shechem. But there's also a more symbolic ascension as Jacob and company go up to God's house for the purpose of worship. Jacob needs a new place to live, in a sense, And in a sense, he's fleeing the Canaanites. And so God sends him back to Bethel and he sends him to build an altar to establish worship there. And note the description associated with the altar that is to be built there. To the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Of course, we're immediately to make association back to chapter 28, as already mentioned. But this isn't just a matter of geography, but a matter of theology. All of the promises that God made to Jacob at Bethel should come back to the forefront of our minds, especially chapter 28 and verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And God has done that for Jacob, hasn't he? He most certainly has. But not only that, don't forget the context in which that promise was spoken. Jacob had a dream, and he saw the staircase connecting heaven and earth upon which the angels of God were ascending and descending. And that's, that staircase was a, a pyramid, a ziggurat, a holy mountain. To go up to Bethel is to go to this mountain. It's to ascend for worship. Of course, this is also indicated by the fact that Jacob was to build an altar. Well, what's an altar in Scripture? A miniature mountain, a place for worship. When you make a sacrifice on an altar, you burn it. And what do you have? Fire and smoke. When Yahweh descended upon Mount Sinai, what did the people see at the top of the mountain? Fire, in the form of lightning, and smoke. When the glory cloud descended upon the tabernacle and later the temple, both of which were holy mountains, there was fire and smoke. And at Pentecost, when the disciples were in the upper room, 
the Holy Spirit was poured out in tongues as of fire. Now, arguably, the church is a holy mountain lit by the fire of the Holy Ghost, which is also a fulfillment of Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman in John 4, that worship wouldn't be confined to Middle Eastern real estate. What's the smoke? Well, the smoke is the sweet aroma of tithing and good deeds, as we read about in such places as Philippians 4.18 and Hebrews 13.15 and 16. So Jacob is to go and build an altar at Bethel which wasn't simply for his personal devotional use, but to establish the kingdom of God in that place over and against the Canaanite culture of the land. Well, having received the command to ascend and build an altar in verse 1, notice that some preparations for ascension are delineated in verses 2 through 4. Jacob instructs his household and all who are with him, which may have included the newly taken captives from Shechem, put away your foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Now notice what's involved here. First of all, a renouncing of their idolatry. We might wonder what idols were doing in the midst of Jacob's household among his sons and their families to begin with. A fair question. Some speculate this would include the teraphim that Rachel stole from Laban, but it's doubtful Rachel would have been given to worshiping false gods she'd humiliated by sitting upon them, which is what she is what we should understand as part of what's happening in chapter 31. More than likely, the foreign gods would have been in their midst as a result of the plundering of Shechem. This also ties into the second command for them to purify themselves. Why do they need to purify themselves? Well, because they become defiled in the actions committed against the Hivites. Shechem defiled Dinah by violating her, and now Jacob's household and the mixed multitude with him are defiled by the presence of foreign gods. Purifying themselves would have involved some type of ritual washing and possibly the offering of sacrifices, even as we later see in Israel's history where some of these practices are codified in the law. And then also notice that they were to change their garments. Well, what's significant about that? Well, garments are representative of the person, and to change their garments would be to signify that they're different people. After having purified themselves, they're no longer idol worshipers. And this echoes back to Genesis 3 when God changes Adam and Eve's garments from their self-made fig leaves to the animal skins he provided for them. Adam and Eve had defiled themselves and they needed new clothing for what Yahweh was calling them to do. Furthermore, garments represent office and Jacob and his household are set apart for a particular calling. They're marked out by circumcision to be a light to the nations, to be a nation of priests to the world and they need to be clothed accordingly. And in verse 4 we read that they complied and gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Now, does this mean earrings are evil? No. These would have been earrings associated with the foreign gods in some form or fashion, whether taken directly from the statues they had or earrings that acted like charms associated with the gods. They, you know, they gave Jacob all their rabbit foot earrings, we might say. And what did Jacob do with them? Well, he hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now, the idea is that he buried them in the ground, though it's a different word here than it's used later in verse 8. Why the idols and earrings weren't burned or melted down is speculated upon, but it's hard to know for sure. However, notice the location, the terebinth tree near Shechem. It's reasonably safe to conclude that this is the same terebinth tree referred to back in Genesis 12 where Abram built an altar. That makes this tree a location of worship 
And for the gods to be buried beneath the tree seems to symbolize God's victory over the gods of the nations, that they've been defeated and will be defeated by the altar of Yahweh. As one pastor observes, in some, what has happened after God called them to ascend to his mountain is a purification. In order to ascend up God's holy mountain, you must be cleansed from impurity, not just as individuals, but as the whole corporate people of God. Well, before we move into the next section, I want to come back to one line spoken by Jacob in verse 3. That's another testimony to his great faith in his God. And surely you noticed it in telling his household and those with him that he was going to Bethel to build an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a a marvelous truth for him to declare? And doesn't that testify that not only did Jacob believe that God would keep his promises to him to be with him, but that God actually fulfilled those same promises. Yahweh promised to be Emmanuel to Jacob, and he has. And he answered his prayers for the provision of a wife, answered his prayers in dealing with Laban and providing for his family through his flocks, answered his prayers in regards to Esau and the blessings in future, uh, and the blessings in future God had promised to him. Yahweh has never abandoned Jacob in all of these years of trial and difficulty and persecution that he endured. The days and nights of enduring the heat and cold as a shepherd even the sleepless nights, the the flight from Laban, and now dealing with unfaithful sons. Still Yahweh is with Jacob. And it has answered him in the day of his distress throughout his various and widespread troubles. That's the testimony of a man of great faith and a testimony that all of us ought to consider and to which we ought to aspire. Well, in verses 5 through 8, we read of their arrival to Bethel. But even before they arrive, the journey from Shechem to Bethel is recorded. And what did God do for Jacob? Well, he caused terror to fall upon the cities that were around them. He made the Canaanites afraid of Jacob and his family, so they left them alone. They didn't bother them. They didn't try to pursue Jacob and his sons and take revenge for the slaughter at the city of Shechem. When we hear this kind of language of terror upon the cities, our minds rightly jump ahead to Joshua 2, where Rahab Rahab tells the spies hiding on her roof, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. So Jacob and all those with him arrive at Luz at Bethel, the name given by faith in the land of Canaan, and there he built an altar just as God had commanded him. In fact, the instruction given for Jacob to build an altar is the only time in Genesis that commands that, that God commands someone to do this. And we need to understand the further significance of this moment. Jacob's sons made a real mess of things back in Shechem. And for all Jacob knows, they've ruined everything. They put an ugly stain on his and their ministry. And Jacob, well, Jacob may wonder what God's going to do next. Is he going to chuck out Jacob and and find someone else and start all over? No, he doesn't do that. He moves Jacob back to Bethel in order for Jacob and company to start over. The covenant isn't destroyed. And God brings Jacob back to Bethel in order to renew the covenant, even as we observe in the next section. You know, this would have been an encouragement to Jacob. And he names the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. 
And once again, the writer wants us to make the connections back to chapter 28 and not forget what happened. But what's meant by the name El Bethel, God of Bethel, God of house of God? Well, what Jacob seems to be doing is testifying that the God of the house of God who appeared to him before has indeed been with him and has been faithful to his promises to bring him back to the land of Canaan. The God of Bethel has brought him back again to Bethel. Well, before we move into the last section, we need to spend a little bit of time considering verse 8 because although it might seem out of place, the amount of tension it receives is somewhat significant in this passage. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakut, Oak of Weeping. Now, a couple of points of clarification. Deborah is the nurse that went with Rebekah and Abram's servant back, in, uh, back to Isaac in chapter 24 in verse 59. When and how Deborah ended up with Jacob in the first place and why she isn't with Rebekah, we simply don't know for sure. Perhaps uh, Deborah was sent to Jacob in Paddan Aram at some point. Uh, in, in chapter 27 and verse 45, Rebecca states that she will send and bring Jacob from there after Esau's anger turns away. Maybe she was sent in some form or fashion related to that. It could be that Deborah simply went to Jacob on her own accord after the death of Rebecca. She wouldn't want to live with Esau and there would have been no reason for her to stay with Isaac. Rebecca's death is not explicitly recorded in Genesis, but in chapter 49 and 31, we're told that she was buried along with Isaac, Abraham, Sarah, and Leah in the cave in the field of Machpelah that Abraham had purchased from Ephron the Hittite. It seems likely that Rebekah died before Jacob's return to Canaan, which also gives us a hint of why the details of Deborah's death are given here. Deborah's name means honeybee, and she was Rebekah's nurse, possibly even Rebekah's wet nurse. She would have been, well, like a nanny to Rebecca, in a sense. But Rebecca would have been very close to Deborah, maybe even closer than to her own father and mother. All that to say, Deborah would have been, would have had a deep and profound influence upon Rebecca. And Rebecca, whose name is a wordplay on blessing, was a righteous, God-fearing woman. And arguably became so primarily from the honeyed instruction of Deborah. There may even be some milk and honey imagery at play here. Furthermore, Deborah would have greatly loved Jacob and been like a grandmother to him. Therefore, if Jacob, had, if Jacob was gone when his mother died, then for him to be there for the death of his grandmother, who had a profound effect upon his beloved mother, then, then record of her burial and the weeping that accompanied it are all the more understandable. As one biblical theologian surmises, Mourning for Deborah stands in for mourning for Rebecca. Blessing is the sound um, Barak, Barakah, and Rebecca is Rebekah. The word for weep is Baka. Oak of weeping would be a pun on oak of blessing and oak of Rebecca. All of these would be in the background of what you would hear. And where was Deborah buried? Beneath an oak, beneath a terebinth tree. She was buried at the foot of a ladder to heaven. She's buried with the hope that she will ascend to God. As one pastor notes, God takes account of this weeping that comes because of death, our enemy. In Psalm 56, David calls upon God to put his tears in his bottle. God sees the weeping, and he will remember his promises to his people. He will turn back our enemy. 
the greatest of whom is death. Well, that brings us to the third and final section in verses 9 to 15, which we'll simply call appearance. In verse 9 we read, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And all that we read through this section is not a recounting of what took place in chapter 28, but is a new encounter that Jacob has with God, where some of the same things that were spoken at the first Bethel experience are stated again or expanded upon here. And the reason for the overlap and expansion is because covenant renewal is taking place. God blesses Jacob. He confers life upon him. And his promises specifically relate to three areas, name, land, and seed. Name, seed, and land. In verse 10, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Again, this doesn't mean he didn't change it before, but is restating it because he's renewing covenant with Jacob. Jacob has gone from heel grabber to God's wrestler. He's moved all the more fully into the position of a king over a nation and people. God gives him this name for this task as he renews covenant with him. Even as the name of God is given to us each week in the benediction, as number 627 teaches us. In verse 11, God Almighty El Shaddai makes a promise to Jacob regarding his seed, and immediately our minds jump back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply. The next part of the promise has a bit of a new twist. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your loins. Kings haven't been mentioned before. But that will certainly prove to be the case, particularly through Jacob's son Judah, from whose line would come David and Solomon and ultimately Jesus. Then in verse 12, the promise of land is given. And the verse itself is structured chiastically. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac to you, I will give it. And to your seed after you, I will give the land. And Jacob's faith should rest in God Almighty who has declared that he will bring these things about. He is the powerful one who is able to accomplish what he's promised. Also, it's interesting to note that name, seed, and land seem to have a Trinitarian correspondence. Name is associated with the Father. Name has to do with representation and glory. When Jesus ministers on the earth, his chief end is to glorify the Father. Seed corresponds with the Son, with offspring. And as we are in Christ, we are his seed, brothers and sisters, with our elder brother. Land corresponds with the spirit, as the land is where spirit, the spirit operates. He was over the creation at its beginning, and he still is bringing, is still, uh, bringing about new creation throughout the world, as those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells continue to expand to the ends of the earth. Then in verse 13, God ascends from Jacob in the place where he'd spoken to him. He goes up the stairway back into heaven. And then in verse 14, Jacob sets up a pillar in the place where God had spoken with him, a memorial stone for God to see and remember his covenant. But then he does a couple of other things that he didn't do the first time. He pours out a drink offering, very likely wine. Uh, you know this well. Wine is a sign of dominion and rest. It's the drink of kings. Jacob was hardly at rest, and he hadn't taken dominion at all on his way out of Canaan back in chapter 28, but now he has. And so he pours out the wine in this communion with God. Then he also pours out oil on the pillar, repeating an action back in chapter 28. Oil is used for anointing, it's liquid fire, and here it represents the spirit and the promises that God had just made. So Jacob is taking up again the offices that God had set him apart for in Canaan. 
And the fact that he's setting up pillars may be symbolic of the building of a house, of the building of a palace, foreshadowing the tabernacle that then expands in the temple, a throne of God in the midst of the land. And while Jacob is established as a king, he knows the greater king that he serves, as all rulers need to be reminded of from time to time. So what are, what are some further realities that should settle upon us uh, and our faith and practice in this world in light of this text? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that idolatry doesn't lead to maturity. And we see this given the fact that Jacob's household was called to get rid of idols and that on the heels of their acting immaturely. While I mainly argued for the idols to have primarily come from the Shechemites, it's certainly possible that there were already other idols in their midst that influenced their lack of discernment. As one scholar notes, any pagan society that worships idols has a wordless God and a wordless religion. Or think of of Orthodox or Roman Catholic countries where they have little preaching and only pictures. If you're in a church where there is regular preaching, you're constantly being challenged to think differently. If you were to confess your sins to your pastor or some other member of the church, they might tell you some things back. That should that could be uncomfortable, but it could cause you to change and learn how to work with other people. See, it's easy to deal with an idol or a picture because they never say anything back. Any kind of iconic religion which is silent never tells you anything you don't already know. So, so let's say you're in the habit of talking to a picture of a favorite saint and you confess your sins to that saint. What is the saint going to say back? Nothing, of course. There's no audible voice. The only voice that's heard comes from your imagination. And more than likely, you're going to say something that you like to hear that doesn't challenge you to change. And pretty soon, you well, you can't get along with people because you prefer these silent statues instead. Or consider that in tribal paganism, what does religious activity consist of? Dancing. You, know, you become part of everybody else in dancing, or you do the wolf dance so that you can become part of the wolfness of everything. You are not hearing language that makes you change. In a civilized form of paganism, what does worship consist of? It consists of meditation about the stars. Stars don't change. They just go through cycles. So in Hinduism or in Islam, it's all meditation. The Quran is just confusion. It's like the oracle at Delphi. Words come out of their mouths, but they don't mean anything. You don't learn patience. All you learn is what you already know. And we have to be careful as Christians of, of the tendency to collapse into a tradition where the people just repeat the same thing over and over and don't hear anything new. And this doesn't mean that repetition in liturgy or catechizing is inherently bad. And so things should be different all the time. No, that's to fall into a ditch on the other side of the road. That would be an overcorrection. But what's one of the tendencies that we've seen over the years in Presbyterian circles? To make the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms the be-all, end-all theology uh, of theology and biblical interpretation. Yeah, they're perfectly helpful resources and are worth knowing and using, but they're also time-bound. They were written about 400 years ago. And some things have changed since then. Or in Episcopalianism, there can be a tendency to elevate the prayer book to an unhealthy status. Again, a marvelous resource, but if all you want is the prayer book all the time, that can be problematic and ultimately hinders maturity. 
When we look back across the life of Jacob, all of the passages about what Jacob endured are about conflicts with other people. And it's in that context that we learn patience. If every time you have conflicts, you just pull out your sword and kill everybody, well, then you don't learn patience. You don't mature. Or go back to the Garden of Eden. What was one of the reasons God created Eve for Adam? So that there was someone to talk back to him. That was part of her job as his helper, just as it's the case for wives today. If we understand Adam and Eve as the prototype, not only for marriage and family, but also for community and even the church, well, inherently there's talking back and forth that needs to take place. As we often like to quote Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. To state the obvious, we need one another if we're going to mature. And yes, sometimes there's conflict. You know, for iron to sharpen iron inherently involves friction, even as we've observed Jacob's wrestling and striving with others unto maturity. So it's the same for us. There's inevitably going to be friction. But then let's ask ourselves, or better yet, let's ask someone else, a spouse, family member, or close friend. Are there idols that I'm listening to that aren't really challenging me to mature? but allowing me to be comfortable where I am in my faith and thinking? Are there only certain voices that I'm willing to listen to or read or be influenced by that are actually hindering maturity instead of aiding it? You know, ask someone who can talk back to you. It may not be an easy conversation. And you may be told some things you don't want to hear. But in their speaking the truth in love, you'll be the better for it. And second, we need to appreciate anew and be encouraged by the fact that God brings us back to our Bethel each and every week in covenant renewal worship. He doesn't say to you, well, you blew it this week. I'm done with you. I'm moving on to someone else. No, he says, come back here. Deal with your sin. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. Remember you're dressed in Christ. Your sins have been dealt with in him. You've received new garments at your baptism. Don't forget that. And each week I put my name upon you in the blessing you receive from my minister. So God calls you to keep building altars, to continue to seek to fulfill your calling, despite the ways you may have sinned or even dishonored his name. He's calling you to come and pray, to strive and wrestle. And maybe sometimes you're at a loss for words. Maybe you don't know if you can pray or maybe you don't want to pray. Well, that's part of the beauty of the liturgy. You don't have to come up with your own prayers when you're here. And by using these prayers, you might find your own prayers will come more easily later on. But remember, God is not nearly so quick to cast you off as you might be inclined to think. He's patient. He suffers long with His children and remains ever ready to run to covenant breakers whom He sees afar off making their way back to Him. If you're given over to idolatry in some form or fashion, whether images that you've seen on a screen or maybe the screen itself, or some form of empty philosophy that is a form of unbelief, then turn back to your God and Father. Repent and be renewed in your faith, even if it feels weak. And so return to the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior and King, whose blood was shed for you for these very sins. And as you consider these things, 
May your faith be reminded that Jacob's God, God Almighty, is your God. And that He's able to do all that He's promised. And may your faith declare with Jacob that yours is the God who answers you in the day of your distress. And He has been with you wherever you have gone. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Jacob that is set before us in your holy scriptures. And we pray that you would direct us in the faith of Jacob, who points us forward to the greater Jacob, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in whose name we pray. Amen.